Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and some of the reasons why it goes up and down. We look at financial legislation that might impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deeper dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand some of the components of it better. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you would like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and that way you can type your question in, I'll be in contact with you, get a little bit more information so that I can make sure I understand all the details, and then we'll share information on the show that can help educate the listeners. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update. This is for the week ending August 23rd, 2019. And honestly, (laughs) the numbers do not reflect the week. And they really don't reflect the last about month we've been living in with this insane level of volatility. 300 points up, 300 points down, 800 points down, 600 points down, like where we ended on Friday, August 23rd. It was a 600 roughly point down day. And what happens is the market then rallies off of some more news. This is being very driven by the concern with a trade war and the long-term potential economic outcome from that from the uncertainty of a policy that we're following from beginning to middle to end. And the markets are beginning to royal to all of the information and all of the change of direction. Now, the good news today is Monday, August 26th. I always tape the shows on Monday. And apparently at the G7 over the weekend, President Trump said that the Chinese were negotiating again. And so when I came in to tape the show, we were up by about 200 points. It'll remain to be seen where we close the day. So when you're looking at markets that are swinging so wildly, that swing is actually called standard deviation. And standard deviation is how much an investment moves around its average return. So if something makes on average of, say, 7 or 8% a year, how much does it swing? That swing is one of the measures of risk that we have. There's two ways we measure risk. The only one I want to talk about today is the standard deviation risk because that is the swing. So when you're lowering the risk in your portfolio, 
One of the things that you might be lowering potentially is the amount of swing. Now, when markets go a little off the rails, everything swings to a certain extent. But just if you're looking at this and it's just making you completely crazy, remember we are continuing to to swing back. There is. You know, I've been sort of this person saying I don't think we're going to have a recession next year, but we do need to solve this trade problem because if we don't solve the trade problem, we very well may end up in a recession. It's it's a fixable problem; we just have to fix it. So, having said that, the Dow went down about a percent last week. That's not too bad. The S and P 500 went down 1.44. The Nasdaq went down 1.83. Gold went up 0.87 percent. Oil dropped 1.75, and the Treasury dropped again. The current 10-year Treasury yield is 1.538 percent. That's down 21 percent last week. Now, some of that was because of a statement that was given by、um, Jerome Powell, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He was at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, last week, and I want to start with something that he wrote. So I am reading his words to you right now. We have much experience in addressing typical macroeconomic developments under this framework, but fitting trade policy uncertainty into this framework is a new challenge. Setting trade policy is the business of Congress and the administration, not that of the Fed. Our assignment is to use monetary policy to foster our statutory goals. In principle, anything that affects the outlook for employment and inflation could also affect the appropriate stance of monetary policy, and that could include uncertainty about trade policy. And he goes on from there. I don't want to quote for too long. But basically, what he's saying is that the uncertainty about the trade policy is causing the Fed to not be as certain as it generally is how it should respond to keep the economy going well, and it's causing the Fed to be slightly less certain about what the economy is going to do. It's not that if we had tariffs and we knew they were in place, the Fed would know what to do. It's the they're on, they're off. Just about the time you decide something is a deal, it isn't, and it's that explosion that's causing such a huge issue. Well, we know that the president is not crazy about、um, the Fed chairman, even though this is a person that he nominated for the job. And actually, I've always said I think that Jerome Powell's doing a pretty good job with this. He's just got a super tough job. And so, you know, the president wants the Fed to lower interest rates. It does look like this tariff uncertainty may, in fact, give the president his wish, but possibly for all the wrong reasons. So that rather than continuing to boost a strong economy by cutting rates lower, which I think is what the president wants, instead the Fed may have to lower interest rates to stop the whole.、Um, The whole economy from slowing down, possibly going into a recession, because of all of the additional expense, the inflation, the lack of productivity, the crops that are rotting in the field, all of the things that are wrong with this Chinese tariff policy. Of course, the president responded to all of this on Twitter. 
by saying my only question is who is our bigger enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi? Basically suggesting that the chairman of the Federal Reserve was a was a hostile leader, um, putting it into the same category as where he's been putting China. So that is disturbing. It is creating an enormous amount of market uncertainty. Really, when we got up on Friday morning, the Chinese had always already put their additional tariffs in place, and the market was fine. It wasn't until the president announced that he was going to increase the tariffs and just really rip into the Fed share Friday afternoon that the market tanked. So it is this uncertainty that's causing us the issue as much as it is the policy itself, and we're just going to have to wait and see where we go from here. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And we have a couple of different issues to talk about today. This is almost a continuation of the last segment for the first piece of legislation that I want to discuss today because it's not a new piece of legislation, but it is something that President Trump tried to invoke on Friday, which was another reason why the markets fell as much as they did. It's called the Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977. And he invoked this when he ordered American companies to quit doing business with China on Friday. And I really think that possibly the markets went down the most because an American president ordering the private sector to do something is not typically how we roll. And so I think that that was as much a cause of the market decline as the additional tariffs, because it was really just an increase in percentage. But he was saying, um, and he says that, um, for all the fake news reporters that don't have a clue as to what the law is relative to presidential powers, China, etc., Try looking at the Emergency Powers Act of 1977, and he tweeted this late on Friday. Case closed. So that's what he's using. So what is the emergency? It's the Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977. And it's an act that's designed to give the president a lot of latitude in regulating international commerce when we have national emergencies. Now, the first reason why you can't just evoke, evoke this um, last week or why he couldn't is because we don't have a national emergency with China. And it really isn't how the act was designed to be used. It was really more to um, just kind of give the ability to kind of control things to the edges. It doesn't look possible. However, we'll have to wait and see what happens. I think that if there is actually a push on the part of the President of the United States to control private sector business, we'll probably see a huge backlash to it and court cases 
And I'd be really surprised if it could hold up, especially in this situation. You know, maybe maybe there's a situation where it would make sense. But that's what he's invoking. That's why he's saying that he can do this. It's pretty obscure. It doesn't look likely. I'm not sure where he got the idea from, but we'll just watch this and see if it goes anywhere other than making the markets just choke on Friday. Hopefully that'll be the end of it. So now to other um, legislative news, that's actually new news. The FDIC has approved revamping the Volcker rule, and that's designed to lessen the bank regulation to make it easier for banks to operate the way they want. And it is, um, it's a bit of a rollback of of some, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Dodd-Frank. Sorry, we're going to just go ahead and leave that pause in there. (laughs) It's from the Dodd-Frank rule, okay? And what it was trying to do was impact how risky of investments banks could make. So it assumes rather than causing the bank to prove that what they've invested in is in compliance with the rule, which is what the old Volcker rule did. Remember, it was a banking crisis that sent us over the cliff in 2008. It was that more than a stock market crisis. And so one of the things that they did was put banking regulation in place. And so as part of that, they said, you know, you're going to have to prove you're in compliance. Well, what this new rule does is allows an assumption of compliance for any investment that's held over 60 days. So as long as you hold it, the assumption is the investment vehicle that you own is in compliance, rather than making you show on the front end that the vehicle was compliant. You know, it's probably not a huge deal. The only thing that I can imagine a real, you know, on-the-ground application that I can just see almost immediately, and there may be other pieces in this that are monsters that haven't stuck their heads out yet, Sometimes in the process of doing due diligence or research on an investment before you make it, you find an issue, you find a situation where if you just if you don't have to prove it up front, it's more likely to slide through the cracks. So again, it's deregulation. The banks love it. That's one reason why they're going to try to rally back from these other events. We'll just have to wait and see where we go from here. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today we are talking about long-term care. Now, notice I didn't say long-term care insurance. We're talking about long-term care. And I need to start out this segment with a little bit of a brief story that might also help you understand where my mind is in all of this. So my mom ended up being sick for nine and a half years before she passed away this spring. And it was staggering the amount of money her care took. 
So we had to pay, we, we, it depleted all of her life savings, and then we had to acquire some additional funding. We were very fortunate that we had a way to do it, but it is, um, long-term care can be bankrupting. And so I really would like for you to have slightly better luck than we did, although the fact that we made it nine and a half years is just nothing short of miraculous. But, you know, typically end-of-life care lasts about three years. Now, I'll tell you, if the person is at home or just receiving crazy good care, that can extend out. My mom stayed home, and I'm absolutely certain that's one reason why her life was extended as many years as it was. And most people want to stay at home because you want good care and you want the people that you love to receive good care. So just first be aware that that three-year assumption might not be correct. So as you're considering your options, I think nine and a half years is probably outside what you should need to plan for, but it can stretch a little longer than you thought. The other thing I want to warn you about is thinking that you'll just use Medicaid and everything will be fine. And I talk to people in their 60s and they're saying, you know, I can't save enough for long-term care and I don't want to buy the policy. I'm just going to use the Medicaid system. And certainly Medicaid is there for the indigent and as part of the Medicaid services, long-term care inside of facilities is part of that. You need to know that to qualify for Medicaid, you have to have spent down the majority of your resources, perhaps created a Medicaid trust. And for the sake of this show, I think that's actually going too far into the weeds for me to go into the details. So I would encourage you to talk to your certified financial planner practitioner about a Medicaid trust about some of the details on the amount of assets that you can retain and still qualify if this is your plan. But, you know, Medicaid got pretty smart that people were just spending down their money. And so they started out putting in a three-year look back. So they would look at anything you gave away in the last three years, and then they would add that back into your resources. So you'd have to spend that much before you qualified. Let's give a better example. Let's say somebody has $100,000 and they give it to a grandchild because the $100,000 probably isn't going to cover your care. And they don't want the money just to go to the nursing home, so they give it to the grandchild. Now they're poor, right? They qualify for Medicaid. Medicaid not, says not so fast. You have to add that $100,000 back in and use it before you qualify. And on top of that, because even the three years ended up not working well for the system, they pushed it back to five years. It used to be three. It is now five. So to qualify for a Medicaid spend down, the assets have to be out of your name five years prior to needing the Medicaid benefit. If that money ends up being spent by the people you gave it to, and five years is a long time to hold an asset and not spend it, then you're out that much money before you qualified for Medicaid. So that means that you don't have the money that you could have used to actually just spend and spend down, and you 
can't spend it and you don't qualify because it hasn't been five years. Now you're in a real mess. Okay, I understand that people don't want to see their life savings going towards their end-of-life care, but Medicaid was not designed to do this workaround. Medicaid was really designed to make sure that the poor in our society have care. I would again encourage you to talk to a certified financial planner practitioner. Medicaid fraud can be very problematic, and I know that the CFP board up until at least the last few years, and I just don't know what they've done during the last few years, did not advise financial planners to recommend Medicaid spend down for fear that, um, one, it's not really what the system was designed for, and two, you could be getting sideways of the law. So proceed really carefully if that's your plan. Once you qualify for Medicaid, there's another monster that nobody talks about. There are not a lot of Medicaid beds, and there may be no Medicaid beds in that awesome facility that you want to go to or you want your loved one to go to. They may not take Medicaid patients. So if you if you need a bed or your family member needs a bed and there are no beds in your community and this is a really it's a real true possibility. They don't promise you a bed where you live. They just promise you a bed. When my grandmother was ill 10 years ago, because she didn't have a lot of resources and she had to mention, I wasn't sure what we were looking at and I didn't know if we could keep her home, I looked into this and there wasn't a Medicaid bed for over two hours from where I left. And, you know, one of the best ways to help make sure people get good care and facilities is to be able to just pop in and out. I couldn't do that with a two-hour commute. So we, we had to work around and make some other plans. So the Medicaid people do the very best that they can. The Medicaid wings, the Medicaid beds, they do the best they can. This is a overwhelming crisis. You have the option, if you don't want to do Medicaid, you could try to get a long-term care policy. You could always simply save money now planning on your care And that way, the money could be used for anything. So the amount of money varies wildly by where you are in the country. And at this point, I'm on both coasts. So I'm a little bit afraid to give you a number. I know in Oklahoma, $250,000 invested today will probably get you right about three years of care. But that's not, that's not a guarantee. That's not a promise. And your person may calculate a totally different number. It's a huge amount of number. It's a huge amount of money. And so we need to be very careful that you plan for this. Maybe the co-housing, maybe moving in with a best friend. There's lots of things that people are doing, but this is a monster. And while everybody can talk about it, you need to make a plan. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you have a question, to submit it to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and I will be able to answer it on the air. On that same website, you can learn more about me, you can find links to my social media, 
And so if there's other things you're curious about, it's kind of a fun site to to go on to and to explore, even if you don't have a question. So my question today is, what does it mean when the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates? Okay, because that's just what happened. It's what Jerome Powell is saying he thinks will be the tool that they use to try to control the trade war and the tariff situation if it stays out of hand. So what does it mean? Well, the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, so when you hear there's things coming out from the Federal Reserve, the FOMC is basically that organization, and it's when they put things out. They set a target for the Fed funds rate, and they make adjustments to that target rate based upon what's going on in the economy. So remember that if the economy is getting a little soft, that means they're going to lower rates. Why? Because they want to encourage lending. What's the rate they actually control? It is the rate of interest that banks charge each other to borrow money overnight. Okay, so an overnight loan is a loan that is made on Monday and paid back on Tuesday. And that's actually the interest rate that the Fed controls. And we don't talk a lot about the overnight rate. Um, You might have heard of something called LIBOR, L-I-B-O-R, the London Interbank Overnight Rate. And it's not a huge interest rate, obviously, because it's a one-day loan. But when the Fed lowers interest rates, that's the rate they lower. And that's why it takes so long for Fed policy to trickle through an economy in its true outcome. So, you know, the Fed does something and everybody goes, ah, and it either goes up or it goes down and everybody flips out. But the actual reaction, not the emotional guttural reaction that the market always gives us when the Fed does something, but the real impact trickles out from that. So when the Fed lowers interest rates, it's great if you're a borrower, right? Because now you don't have to pay back as much. It's lousy if you're a lender, And you might think, well, I'm not a lender. Well, you know what? You might be. Because if you own a bond, you have made a loan. If you own a bond fund, you own an investment that's made lots of loans. So when interest rates fall, that means that there's less interest being paid on new investment items. So if you own a bond fund and the bonds in your fund pay, say, 3% and rates drop to 2%, now you're going to have an increase in the value of your fund. So the fund itself may go up a little bit, but the yield goes down. Now, if you own outright bonds, that means that the bonds that you can buy right now 
are lower than they were even just six months ago. I was actually getting excited because, you know, buying a bond, you're pretty much making a commitment. At least the way I do it, you need to talk to your own financial person. It's like, okay, you know, I don't want to lock in something really low. So let's wait until rates go up a little bit. This will be better. It was just starting to look interesting. And now they've dropped again. So if you were wanting to create a bond portfolio to give you income, you're not going to get as much income because you're not going to get as much interest because interest rates have dropped. So this does trickle through and it impacts all of us. We'll have to wait and see where we go from here. If things calm down, it might ride itself, but I suspect it will take a while. Well, once again, I cannot believe how fast this week has gone. It seems like this week, a lot of the show ended up talking about politics and tariffs and trade wars. Hopefully things will calm down next week. We'll have a wider range of topics and a little bit less of an adventure that we're trying to deal with to help you understand your money and plan your prosperity. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.